I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hello again and welcome to episode 16 of Signals to Danger. As ever, I will kick things off by thanking all of you for being here, for your likes, your shares and your subscriptions. And again, thanks to those of you who interact with me on social media. So if you do want to be one of them, you can remember we're on Twitter as at Signals to Danger. And you'll also find us on Facebook and now Instagram as well. This podcast is made possible by everybody who listens to it, everybody who downloads it. But even more so by those who support it on Patreon. I'd love to thank our new patrons since last episode. That's Edward, Hugh, James, Mark, Casey, Nathaniel, Thomas and Jim. Your support is so very appreciated. And actually I'm overwhelmed to see so many of you popping up. If you're interested in supporting Signals as well, get yourself along to the support page at atsignalstodanger.com. That is the same website where you'll find our episode notes and news. That's signalstodanger.com. Um, if you listen to this podcast a lot, you'll know that I don't normally do trigger warnings, um, quite frankly, because I believe that the subject matter of the podcast on the whole is a bit of a warning in itself. But I will this time for a very, very specific reason. This episode features an accident where a train derails and collides with a bridge. On Saturday evening, yesterday when I'm recording this, but the 13th of March, a Merseyrail train derailed and collided with a bridge at Kirkby. Now, this does seem to have been a far less severe affair than what we're about to discuss, but I think some of the details in that are still very much emerging, so it might be prudent to throw this in here this week. Nice quick intro this time round. So it seems as though it's time for us to get cracking on episode 16. In a quiet cutting in the Kent countryside, wooden splinters and pieces of metal were mixed in with the grey stone of the ballast. Steam cranes were starting to arrive to help lift wreckage to aid rescuers, and the sides of the cutting had become busy with workmen and officials as the toll was counted. What hours earlier had been a passenger express was now a twisted wreck. The year is 1927 and the place is Seven Oaks. 
The scene searched through the wreckage for the injured. At least 13 people are known to have died. Carriages are crushed one on top of another. One lies metres away and appears partially burned. The railway industry is tonight coming to terms with yet another disaster. This is Signals to Danger, a podcast where we look at major rail disasters which have occurred in the UK, explain what happened, how the investigation was carried out, and how each of these accidents shaped the industry going forwards. I'm Dan, I work within the rail industry in my day-to-day life, but today I'll be the one taking you through this podcast. If you've been with us before, then you know the next part. Let's look back at what the world looked like at the time of the episode. And we are a little further back than the last couple of times. In fact, we've gone all the way back to the Roaring Twenties. 1927, to be precise. 1927 started on the 1st of January with the handing down of a royal charter to the British Broadcasting Company, turning it into the British Broadcasting Corporation, an institution long-standing still to this day, although the media it delivers has grown and changed since then. Two weeks later, the first ever sports broadcast aired on the BBC. For those wondering, rugby, not football. Rugby union, in fact. England versus Wales. Fast forward to the 12th of April. The Royal and Parliamentary Titles Act renames the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland to the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. The change acknowledges that the Irish Free State is no longer part of the kingdom, and it remains the stylization to this date. May sees Saudi Arabia become independent of the UK, and also the UK sever its diplomatic ties with the Soviet Union due to espionage. October brought a vote where the Labour Party agreed to nationalise the coal industry, and in November, if you can imagine a world without them, the country's first automatic traffic lights were installed in Wolverhampton. The year closed itself out with what appeared to be some terrible weather, including a Christmas Day blizzard in Wales, and on one day in December, 1,600 people were hospitalised in London due to icy streets. However, the hazards we'll be discussing took place a little earlier in the year, on the 24th of August. On this episode, as we have so many times before, we will start our story in London. In fact, in a familiar location, Cannon Street Station. You'll remember that we visited Cannon Street all the way back in episode 5, when we looked into the story of how a passenger train failed to stop before it collided with the buffer stops in 1991, causing two deaths and, quite frankly, a mind-boggling 542 injuries. If you haven't heard that one, I would of course recommend it, but we know that I'm biased. If you did listen to it, you'll know that one of the defining features of the station was the low, dark, artificially lit space above the platforms. And this was due to the fact that an office block sat directly above them. A lovely, not very aesthetically pleasing addition to the station. Luckily, however, that is not the image that we need to hold in our heads this time. A long time before the Brutalist office block, which was thrown up around the time the 50s turned into the 60s, the platforms at Cannon Street had a much nicer ceiling. This was a single glass and iron arch, 
fully befitting a city centre terminus. And it is under this arch that we start this story. Although it was probably obscured by smoke and steam considering the era. On this Wednesday evening, one source of the smoke was the steam locomotive number 800, a river-class tank engine known as River Cray. The locomotive stood at the head of a passenger train, waiting to take people from the city and back to their homes in the southeast of the country. Aboard the locomotive preparing for departure was the footplate crew, fireman H.C. Barter and driver F.H. Bus. Many, many things had changed in the 64 years between then and the Cannon Street disaster. Instead of multiple units driven by electrical traction motors or diesel engines, the train was composed of eight passenger carriages marshalled behind the locomotive. All of the power required to move them around at high speed was contained in the boiler and smoke box of River Cray, an 84-tonne living, breathing beast. Instead of a single driver, sat in the cab with his controls all at hand's reach, Bus and Barter worked at a team, stood at the footplate, Barter tending to the fire, and Bus winding controls, throwing levers and adjusting cocks, which isn't anywhere near as bad as it sounds, just go and have a look at the stopcock in your house for a quick explanation of that particular phrase. Like I said, many things had changed, but one thing hadn't, the passengers. At five in the evening, those approaching Cannon Street Station, metres from the financial centre of the capital, those approaching the platforms and boarding the trains, would have been businessmen, and those returning from days in the city, working and playing, back to return to their homes and families. And so they swarmed into the station, boarded the carriages and settled in, and at 1730 seconds, just half a minute late, whistles were blown, flags were waved, and bus started gently to take his train out of the platforms at Cannon Street and onto the bridge over the Thames. The 5pm train was to take would take it from Cannon Street Station all the way to the town of Deal on the Kent coast, around 10 miles north of Dover. Which, as far as this podcast goes, means it introduces us to yet another line, one that we've not covered before. This is the line that takes trains from the capital onto the southeast of the country and follows the naming convention that we've seen on several occasions, so you won't get any prizes for figuring out that it's the southeastern main line. After the line crosses the Thames, it runs down through the southeastern suburbs of the capital, through places such as Hither Green and Orpington. It then runs down to Tunbridge, before the line turns firmly to the east, out to Ashford International, where nowadays you can connect to, well, international services, but at the time it was very much just known as Ashford, before it heads on to Folkestone, Dover and the Kent Coast. Built in the 1840s, the line was envisaged to link the communities of Greater London to the Kent countryside and to the boats that crossed the Channel to the continent, particularly those out of Dover and Folkestone. We have talked about the different eras of the railway before. Working backwards from now, we've seen, well, whatever now is, but privatisation, British Rail, the Big Four, 
before this was the era when the railways were created, where anybody with money and inspiration could start out on the venture of creating a railway company, provided they could get parliamentary assent in any case. This meant that many, many companies existed, building their own lines and running their own trains. The South Eastern Main Line, well, had been built by the South Eastern Railway. As an aside, the line was always plagued by a bit of competition due to the fact that around 10 years after it was built, a second railway company, the London, Chatham and Dover, railway was formed out of the East Kent Railway. And it would be fair to say that the two competed for business to the coast. This part of the world has quite a bit of duplication of routes. But to go back to today's story, really it's the first section of the line that we need to think about. The section that leads southeast from the capital down to Tonbridge in Kent. Along this section, as we said earlier, the line passes through the southern suburbs of London and moves further down into Kent. Many of the services through here stop at all of these stations, serving those who commute in and out of the capital. In fact, half an hour before Bus and Barter took their service out of Cannon Street, a stopping train left Charing Cross and travelled down the very same route, calling at every station along the way. But for those who lived further out, into Kent, there was another option – the express trains, like the 5pm from Cannon Street. Driver Boss at the controls of River Cray, had 40 years' experience working for the South Eastern Railway, 30 of them as a driver of locomotives, just like this one. He was also familiar with the route through to Kent and the coast, as was Barter, although he had only a quarter of the time on the job that Boss did. I'd hardly count a decade as a, a new starter, though. Barter had never been on the footplate of a river class, and he did tell Boss this before they bought it, wasn't an issue though he he was primarily responsible for the fire and that was manageable in this circumstance and Barter wasn't actually concerned he heard really good things about the class their efficiency meant that a fireman's job could actually be a little bit easier than on some of the other locomotives less hard work shoveling to keep the fire going with both men performing their duties the train left the very heart of the capital and because this was an express train, they didn't really need to worry about stopping for the first half of the journey. The first scheduled stop being at Ashford at five minutes past six. London Bridge, New Cross, Hithergreen and Chiselton all passed without incident, as the train steamed on without being checked by any signals, clear aspects all the way. Ten miles and 19 minutes later, however, on the approach to the distant signal at Orpington, Boss noticed a caution but as they approached, the arm dropped to clear. He didn't even need to apply the brakes and continued to steam on again, only seeing clear signals. On the approach to Knockholt, around another three miles along the route, Boss and Barter had the train at 35 miles an hour. They'd had to slow because of a rising gradient, but this was all about to change. Just after the up-distant at Knockholt, the gradient began to fall again. 650 yards later, 
the train plunged into Paul Hill Tunnel, picking up speed as it did so, headed down the gradient, underneath the current path of the M25, although at the time this wasn't really a feature, but it should give you an idea of where this tunnel is. After the train burst out of the other end, it took two sweeping turns, first to the left and then the right, before it stormed through the platforms at Dunton Green. By this time, 35 mile an hour had become 55, and the eight-carriage train was well and truly steaming through the countryside. Shortly after Dunton Green, the line enters a long, lazy turn to the left, with the engine still under power, steam being driven to the pistons, pulling along, Boss noticed something very unusual. He heard a knocking noise in front of the engine. He knew this wasn't right, wasn't a normal sound, and so he immediately closed the regulator. This shut off the flow of steam to the driving gear, and after the clattering noise that shutting off steam creates had subsided, he listened again. The noise started again. Boss applied the brakes, fully applied them. The reason he made this decision so quickly and acted so decisively was down to what he thought was the source of the noise. Boss thought that the Bissell wheels had derailed. A Bissell truck, or Bissell truck, is a single axle bogey which pivots at the centre normally carrying a single set of unpowered wheels on the locomotive. They help to guide the loco through curves more easily. At the leading end of River Cray, directly behind the buffer beam, sat a Bissell truck, carrying the leading wheels of the locomotive. If these had derailed, it put the 60 mile an hour train in quite a precarious situation. Not to mention the fact that there was eight carriages of passengers behind the locomotive, so of course Boz set the brakes and did so quickly. But train brakes don't always have a swift response and Boss didn't really feel as though the brakes had started to arrest the speed of his train until the train entered a cutting and approached the overbridge at Shoreham Lane. And this is the point that what might have been a simple derailment turned into disaster. The bridge which carries Shoreham Lane over the south-eastern main line was quite steeply angled, almost 45 degrees when compared to the line. And instead of one large arch as seen on some bridges, the road deck was supported at each end by the abutments, and in the centre of the bridge between the two tracks was a stone pier, supporting the road deck from the middle. What this design essentially created was two separate portals to the bridge, one for the upline and one for the down. And it was at the point that locomotive number 800 reached this bridge that everything changed. Boss stood in the driving position on the right-hand side of the cab, saw and felt the top right-hand side scrape the pier as the locomotive passed underneath. This in itself said that something was very, very wrong. The bridge should have been well clear of the locomotive. Even if it might have felt like you were going to hit it every time you drove a train through those portals, like driving under a height restriction sign in the car, they sat outside of the loading gauges of the trains permitted to use this line. And we have covered this before in a couple of episodes, but again, the short, short version is that both structures and rolling stock are built to templates 
which mean they should never come into contact with each other. So we know that something had gone wrong. But it was worse than a glancing blow. Because on the opposite corner of the locomotive to the cab, the front left-hand corner, an even more violent impact had taken place between the driving cylinder and the bridge's abutment. Rivercray exited the other side of the bridge, derailing to the left of the track and after 112 yards of running over ballast, the locomotive eventually came to a rest, leaning up against the side of the cutting to the left of the tracks. Its front buffer buried in the soil which made up the cutting wall. In the process of travelling underneath the bridge, the first and second coaches of the train had both collided with the bridge supports, and they too ended up derailed, piled up just behind the engine. The third carriage, dragged through behind them, had separated from the leading three vehicles, and now lay astride the downline. All three of these coaches had suffered extensive damage in the course of the derailment, with both the first and the third being irretrievable following the accident. This damage, however, paled in significance to the damage caused to the fourth vehicle, carriage number 5518. In the course of the derailment, this vehicle had become trapped underneath the bridge itself. A considerable amount of the coach had been crushed as the accident took place. And as the fourth vehicle became lodged, it had an unexpected effect on the following one. The Pullman car directly behind it, named Carmen, was deflected to the right by the now stationary rear end of the fourth vehicle, and it ended up upright along the leading face of the bridge, blocking both of the lines. Its leading end rode up the cutting wall, lifting it above the tracks. The sixth vehicle, yet another passenger coach, now ended up telescoping into the rear of the Pullman car, peeling a length of its side and roof panels off like a wooden banana. Directly behind it lay the two rearmost coaches, derailed but more or less upright, leaning to the right onto the ballast where the two running lines had been. In a period of 30 seconds or so, which passed by without remarkable incident elsewhere in southeast England, a passenger train had gone from nearly 60 miles an hour to a dead stop in a storm of splintering wood and screeching metal. And the toll was not just one of broken rails and battered rolling stock. 21 of the train's passengers had received serious injuries and 13 lives had been lost the majority from the fourth carriage, crushed and lodged within the bridge portal.
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. His Majesty's Rail Inspectorate was on the scene in short order. As the breakdown cranes and rescuers carried out their grim task, Colonel J.W. Pringle and his team started the work of understanding the cause of this tragedy. Of the eight carriages of the Deal Express, half were never even recovered from the cutting. They were so severely damaged by the crash that they were simply broken up where they landed. It does tell a horrific tale for those who have been travelling within them. The investigators had quite the task ahead of them. They needed to answer a sequence of questions to explain the wreckage left behind in the Kent cutting. First, and this would form the bulk of the inquiry, what was it that had led to the train derailing in the first place? Secondly, were there any other factors which influenced the accident? And thirdly, after all this information was discovered, what could be done following the accident to prevent a reoccurrence? If you've listened to a derailment episode before, you will know that there's quite a bit of a flaw that I go through when we discuss the possible causes of these accidents. The phrase I've used several times is that the straight and unbroken rail is very good at keeping train and track together. And it does sound a little repetitive to keep saying it, but it is. It's a good, strong, factual statement, and it gives us a starting point to interrogate these types of incidents. So, to use this flaw... Was the line between Dunton Green and Sevenoaks straight? No, it wasn't, but we need to look at how not straight it was. There were a number of curves in this area of the southeastern main line, but they were long sweeping curves without any overly excessive tightening. The curve the accident took place in was between 50 and 70 chains, or nearly half a mile's worth of radius in new money. So it was a corner, sure, but not one that screamed excessive curvature, nor was it suddenly sprung upon a driver. But more importantly, there were safety measures put into the design to help trains negotiate this corner. The outside rail was designed to be raised higher than the inside one, what we call cant, but it's also referred to in this report as super-elevation. This mitigates some of the effects of centripetal force and helps to guide the wheels around the corner without relying on the flanges to scrape their way around. In addition, check rails were fitted onto the curves south of Dunton. These additional rails, mounted just next to the inside one, helped to provide an additional protection. They were designed to keep the flanges of the wheels on the track. So yes, while the tracks here were curved, 
they weren't overtly so and mitigations were in place in the design. So this probably wasn't the smoking gun in, in and of itself. So the next question is whether or not the line could be classed as unbroken. This doesn't necessarily mean that the rails have to be physically broken. We also look at the presence of switches and crossings too. Were there any sets of points in the vicinity of this accident? The short answer is yes. Just before the bridge that River Cray collided with was a set of catch points. These were provided due to the gradient here, giving an opportunity for a runaway or uncontrollable train to be directed off the track, intentionally derailing it. It's clear that this sort of protection would only be used in an incredibly serious circumstance. <laughs> we see them quite often around the network, but they are your last resort. Now, on the scene, on the day, an initial glance could have led you to believe that the catch points were probably the culprit for this disaster. They were incredibly heavily damaged. The stock rails, the fixed rails, burst apart. If you were to stand at the remains of them and follow the line between the stock rails and the north face of the Shoreham Lane Bridge, you would see a mess of destroyed rails, broken sleepers and damaged carriages. It became clear that the disintegration of the points here had led to the train running severely derailed beyond this point, and it was now clear that this was probably what led to the locomotive being able to strike the bridge portal as it did. With such significant damage to the track, there was very little hope of the train remaining in anything that looked like engage. And you could stop and look at this and think the mystery has been solved. Something must have been wrong with these points. The problem comes that if you were to turn around and look at the opposite direction from them, you'd see more. There was significant damage on the track approaching the points, over 1,500 feet of it to be precise. This clear damage demonstrated that while a catastrophic interaction took place between the train and the catch points, this was not the factor that started the accident. Yet it had had a disastrous effect on the outcome. But it was something that happened due to the derailment and worsened it. It wasn't the cause of the accident overall. So now we find ourselves asking the question again, what actually caused the derailment? Investigators traced the damage back to the furthest north of the marks, 560 yards back along the track. Understandably, once they found what was the first marks, they needed to see whether there were any influencing features around there. Were there any catastrophic failures in the rail? Any objects that had been obstructing the line? Any points in the immediate vicinity? Unfortunately, the answer was no. This did not shed the light that was hoped for. To look at the marks on the rails, it appeared as though the derailment happened spontaneously. No mechanical trigger was evident. The point became known on the drawings and records as point A but no immediate cause of derailment was obvious there. At point A, a score, 23 feet and 1 inch in length, was clearly visible across the left-hand railhead, made undoubtedly by the flange of a left-hand wheel crossing from the inside to the outside of the rail. The right-hand wheel on the same axle consequently dropped off the rail into the forefoot between the two tracks. 
there was no sign of any obstruction in the vicinity of Point A. Between the inside rail and check rail, which would account for the left-hand wheel lifting. But it was clear that at this point, a pair of wheels had derailed. It was also decided that it was most likely the leading set of driving wheels, and that from point A, they had run derailed to the inside of the tracks for the 560 yards of the corner, up until the point they, meet, they met the catch points. During this time, they destroyed keys and chairs, the fixings that were designed to hold the rails to the sleeper, along the way. Hundreds of them. This knowledge was incredibly helpful, but it didn't, on its own, shed any light over the actual reason that River Cray derailed, just that at least one set of her wheels had left the rails at this point. So we move on to another question. If it wasn't the track, then... Was it the train? When investigators approached the wreckage of the River Cray, Lee lying up against the wall of the cutting, they knew immediately that the locomotive had suffered some serious damage. In fact, it was even itemised in the first appendix of the report. A wheel missing from the leading Bissell truck. The truck itself badly damaged. The buffer beam badly bent. Left-hand cylinder smashed. The pistons and valves on that side badly damaged, along with driving rods. And a great deal of damage to step plates, the cab and other parts of the bodywork. Locomotive number 800 had been through the ringer, and it was abundantly clear that the majority of this damage was as a result of the collision with the bridge, as well as the cutting side where the train came to rest. What remained to be seen was whether any of it had been the cause, and not the result of the derailment. Unfortunately for those charged with explaining the injuries and deaths at Seven Oaks, the evidence of the locomotive didn't bring the light bulb moment that they had hoped. The damage was all a result of the collision with the bridge and the brutality that is running derailed at 60 miles an hour. Even the missing front wheel was found in between the bridge and the final resting place, meaning that it too was a result of the derailment and not the cause of the marks so many yards back. Which, yet again, counted out another potential cause... We now know that neither curvature, broken rails, switches or crossings or a defective locomotive were to blame for the accident. So we find ourselves asking the next question. Was it the way the locomotive was driven? And again, unfortunately, a blank was found on this front, at least initially. The speed River Cray ran through this area, between 55 and 60 miles an hour, was within the permissible speed. Bus and Barter both survived the accident and were able to give testimony to that fact. Unfortunately, we're around about 50 years too early for the start of the age of the on-train data recorder, the black box, so we wouldn't be able to use that to prove or disprove their claims. However, what we could use would be the records that were held at signal boxes up and down the route. I do think we've touched on this before, but in signal boxes, signalers were obliged to enter every train into the registers as they passed, showing the exact time by the signal box clock. These timing logs could be used to work out average speeds between the boxes and to provide a reasonably accurate indication as to whether or not the train had been, well, speeding. Funnily enough, there was no indication that the train had been speeding. In fact, it seemed as though bus had been driving conscientiously throughout the journey, shutting off power where it was needed, asking Barter to operate the dampers in a way that made the job easier. So this option was out of the running as well. It appears as though River Cray 
had just spontaneously jumped off the rails. Which, as it turns out, wasn't a million miles from the truth. But to understand what I mean by that, we need to take a bit of a deeper look at the river-class locomotive. The River Class was a steam locomotive, which I think we probably all understand. But a very brief version of what that means is that the heart of the locomotive was a horizontal boiler, which was used to boil water with the heat from a coal fire located in the firebox next to the cab. This boiled water was turned into steam, which used to drive pistons to turn that movement into turning wheels. And the train goes on and is a train. (laughs) That's a very, very low technological answer for that one. But a locomotive like this requires a crew of at least two, a driver to control the train and a fireman to stoke and manage the fire, hence the presence of both boss and barter on the footplate. Steam evaporates and coal burns. So to keep the fire burning and the boiler water pressure up means that locomotives need to carry a ready supply of both water and coal to replenish along the way. Without this, they really wouldn't get very far at all. Most engines, well, the larger and more powerful ones at least, carried this water and coal in what is known as a tender, a wagon which is semi-permanently coupled to the locomotive. This carries tonnes of each, and is actually pretty good at providing a stabilising influence to the engine as it rockets along the line. But not every locomotive has a tender. There isn't always the need to carry such a large quantity of these supplies on a shorter journey or when you're pulling lighter loads. Just in the same way that a 44-ton lorry might not be appropriate for delivering door-to-door, the railway had smaller locos to fulfil the smaller needs. Tank engines. Instead of carrying their fuel in a separate tender, tank engines stored their coal in a bunker on the loco and their water in tanks, normally located either side of the boiler. And this is one of the weaknesses of the design. Not having the tender removes one source of stability, as I said earlier. But adding water into tanks either side of the boiler can add another element of instability. For a start, these tanks, mounted halfway up the side of the engine, raises the centre of gravity. That could lean to increased movement at the top as you're going around corners, and Actually, the water moving around in the tanks could surge and cause movement of the locomotives itself. If you want an example of surge, half fill a bottle, put it on your worktop, slide it along and watch what happens. Quite often, as the water sloshes, the bottle will come to a stand and then move again a second time. It won't move much, but there'll be a stop and a move. That move, that second move, is caused by the surge of water within the bottle. And this can happen on a tank of water on a train as well. One way of getting round this is to fit baffles, plates in the tank that essentially make them into lots of smaller spaces and stop large movements and limit surging. It doesn't completely do away with the problem, but it massively reduces it. Instead of water moving a metre along the front of the t- along a tank, the water's moving 30 centimetres there's less force and power involved. 
some designs of tank engine were less stable than others, particularly susceptible to side-to-side motion, a rocking that was actually known as rolling. And now we're starting to understand what happened. You see, Locomotive 800, the River Cray, was a river-class loco, and the crews that worked them had given them a nickname, Rolling Rivers. Drivers and firemen who worked the trains were interviewed by investigators, and they recalled almost to a man that above 50 miles an hour on the southeastern line, these trains could roll quite heavily. Even Boss, on the day in question, had driven the train in such a way to minimise rolling in certain locations, a perfect example being on the exit to Paul Hill Tunnel. It was a known issue with the class on this route, and even on the day in question, the accident train's driver was trying to mitigate for rolling. And so this was the course the investigation took, and finally it yielded some fruit. The marking from point A towards the catch points showed a definite pattern of left to right rolls. Left, then right, then back again. They extrapolated this pattern backwards and they were able to come to the following conclusion. The cause of this derailment must be attributed to the rolling motion of engine number 800. Initiated possibly when it passed over the trailing points connection on the downline just south of Dunton Green Station. This side-to-side tilting motion must have continued and increased in amplitude on the left-hand curve until spot A, 250 yards south of the trailing points. At this point, as the result of the heavy roll to the right, the right side of the engine frame dipped to the extent that the flange of a left-hand wheel rose to around about the height of the railhead. The lateral effect of the lurching from side to side acted on the frame of the engine at the moment when the roll was commencing to alter from right to left. This led to the flange of the left-hand wheel being either swung or shifted onto the head of the rail, and the rest of the left-hand move carried that flange diagonally across the railhead. Which is all very, very wordy, but essentially means that the locomotive bounced one of its wheels into derailment. And this derailment continued until the catch points, where the the derailed wheel burst the points and derailment itself turned into disaster. The answer to question one was found. The instability of the river-class locomotive was to blame for the derailment. Now that the main cause was identified, it was important to see whether or not there were any other factors to influence the accident. The short answer is yes, but I'm sure you don't just want the short answer. To investigate the instability of the river class, they were run and the rolling movement was measured. But this wasn't just done on home turf. The testing was also carried out on the London and North Eastern, and surprisingly different results were found. On the LNER, the locomotives were found to be reasonably stable at speeds up to the mid-80s, so there must have been more at play. Perhaps the tracks between Dunton and Sevenoaks weren't as good as they initially appeared. 
Yes, the rails weren't broken, but there is more to track than that. In the conclusion of his report, Pringle tells us what else they found. Examination, however, of the down track in the vicinity of the scene of this accident, and the actual survey made of the gauge and level of the rails, leads us to conclude that there was an insufficiency of hard and clean ballast, foundation, a lack of proper drainage, an irregularity in the level and gauge of the rails, sufficient to set up serious rolling and lateral motion on tank engines travelling at high speed. This means that the line was not adequately supported by the ballast, and the cant wasn't quite as sufficient as required by design in places around the corner. The design documents for the railway here said that the cant, the super-elevation, should have been three inches, three inches higher on the outside rail than the inside. What they actually found was two. The insufficiency of hard and clean ballast means that the track had wet beds, which means that the uh, gravel is supposed, the gravel ballast is supposed to take water away. A nice, hard, firm structure that can move with the weight of the trains, but allows water to escape. If hard and clean ballast isn't there, what you get is a lot of mud, and this doesn't allow it to do its job properly. It doesn't allow it to absorb movements properly. The rolling motion that was started by the points might have dissipated on a a better maintained bit of track. But the fact is that the condition of the tracks here allowed that roll to continue and actually allowed it to propagate, continuing and amplifying up until the point that the wheels literally jumped clear of the line. last point what could be done to improve was actually fairly easy to ascertain on the issue of the condition of the track the ballast the cant and the drainage the southeastern railway was handed some very easy to understand remarks as part of the report the necessity for the permanently strengthening of the roadbed on some sections of their main lines of railway in order to meet present day traffic conditions does not appear to have been fully realized loading has been increased and heavier and more powerful locomotives have been designed and built to haul these heavier loads at the same or higher speeds. They were called out on the fact that they hadn't maintained that part of the asset. They hadn't allowed for the fact that heavier locomotives were coming, and they hadn't maintained the railway to accommodate for them. Advice was also handed down, directing the railway to pay better attention to maintaining it, not only the packing and supply of dry and well-maintained ballast, but also the cant of the line, to the point where they even advised that they may wish to erect pillars in this type of location, a critical curve, showing the cant required. Remove all of the ambiguity. 
The other main contributing factor to the accident, like we've discovered already, is the inherent instability of the river class. Despite the fact that they've shown reasonable stability elsewhere, on better maintained track, a decision was made by the Southeastern Railway to actually convert them. All of the remaining members of the river class family were converted into tender engines. The tanks on either side of the boiler were removed and a tender was added, vastly improving the stability of the locomotives while avoiding the bad press that the um, questionable locomotives might bring to the company. legacy of the accident at Seven Oaks is a fairly quiet one. There is no memorial that I've been able to find a reference to, and that is a shame. But it's a state of play that I've come across at the scene of several of these accidents, especially the ones that occurred much further back, at a time when they were more common. And that's probably the brutality of it. If you go back to the the early 2000s where these accidents were happening rarely and the loss of a single life is tragic, memorial gardens and statues and sculptures show up. They're implemented by the victims or those who remember. But if you go back to the first half of this century or even... Well, not this century. Sorry, I forgot we were in the 2000s there for a second. But if you go back to the, the early 1900s or the the 1800s, there's not many of them that are remembered in this way. And it is a tragedy. Um, but I don't believe that they, they were that unusual an incident at the time when living relatives were probably aware of it. The one thing that I can tell you is that the bridge at Shoreham Lane has been rebuilt since the disaster. You can see it on cab ride videos along the route. No longer do you rocket through two small dark portals, but now a single arch sweeps over the track, supported on the old abutments. And I've not been able to find any records of when that happened or why that happened. I don't think it was a reaction directly to this accident, because I don't think it was damaged badly enough in the accident to to need replacing. It may have been something to do with regaging works that took place in the years following, or who knows? If you do know, please let me know. <laughs> but um, it's certainly a, a safer-looking affair, and I don't think you'll have drivers ducking in the cab so much. The last thing that I will leave you with in this episode is a story that I stumbled upon while I was researching the episode. A hospital worker in London was on his way home from the city to Dunton Green. As he prepared to alight, something caught his attention. In Pole Hill Tunnel, they tell how they heard a lady with a soft, polite voice say, Excuse me. The voice was from a 50-ish-year-old woman. She didn't appear to have any luggage and stood there with her arms at her side. She continued, Could you tell me where this train is going? The uh, hospital worker informed her that the train was headed to Seven Oaks and asked her where she wanted to go. 
She replied, Seven Oaks, of course. She then added, I've been going up and down on this train all day long. He was surprised and he asked her, Why all day long would nobody help you? Nobody would listen to me, she said. As we approached the station, he said, he explained that next stop was Dunton Green and then Seven Oaks afterwards. The train stopped, the doors opened and he stepped off the train, turning immediately to look at her again, but she had disappeared. After the event, he thought back and remembered that as he was talking to her, the train was rocking more than usual, particularly in the tunnel. And that's when it struck him that she'd been standing absolutely still and wasn't holding on to anything to steady herself. His conclusion was that the woman had been a ghost. And who knows if they do exist? The railway has had its fair share of untimely departures that might wish to hang around as a warning to others. Thank you yet again for tuning into episode 16. Once more, please like, share and review. Come and interact with us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Just search for Signals to Danger or Daniel Fox Rail. If you do want to support the podcast, get yourself over to signalstodanger.com and either look at the support or the shop pages. But if not, until the next episode, travel safe. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey. It's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.